0: So, we'll go further. <laughs> He's right down now. There. All, so, there. All right. Well, so thank you everyone for so, coming to our um, July A seminar. Um, so, we are delighted to have um, Dr. Dion Odom here, who a bunch of people maybe know uh, from a uh, prior life before she went, before she moved <laughs> from here to UAB. So, so Jody is um, currently an assistant professor um, at the University of uh, at UAB, and um, is also of the Chief of Women's Health Services there in the 1917 HIV clinic. Um, and Jody started first, of what I'm hoping is three um, soldiers at Dartmouth, and she went to Med School Theater, and um, uh, then she left, went to New York, and for a fellowship, but, and then came back to Dartmouth for number two, where she was uh, on the faculty here as an assistant professor, and also an deputy state epidemiologist um, for the state of New Hampshire, and then um, went to UAV from there. Um, uh, what is the third social in west? Well, time will tell. <laughs> Keep trying to repeat Jody. So um, Jody's uh, very, very uh, busy Physician and academician down at UAB, very active mentor, researcher, clinician, and her interests uh, throughout have been around HIV, women, global health, and uh, intersection of all of these. Current work is around uh, uh, HIV, pregnancy, and co infections with malaria, hepatitis B, and sexually transmitted infections. So, very busy in the global health community, also very active in the national. Uh, STI community, where she sits on the CDC uh, guideline committee, um, for STDs. Um, so we're excited for Jody to come back and join us and then so I don't mess up my responsibilities. Um, uh, there are no conflicts of interest uh, for nurses. Nurses need to stay for 80% of the session. uh get credit? Was there anything else I'm sure to say for nurses? Do we have the code number? I will put the code number up on the board here. Um, all right, so with it isn't our delay,
1: let me quickly hand off to Joe. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, everyone. It's always wonderful to come home. So any reason to come back is a great reason for me. Um, so I have put a lot of slides. I do want to leave some time for questions at the end. But um, I love to talk about STI, HIV, and pregnancy. So this talk could have been many different things based on current research, but I thought this would be a good chance to let you know mostly what's happening on the national stage. This is not a global focus talk.
0: Try page down. Here
1: we go. Thank you. I have no financial disclosures. We're going to talk about background epidemiology, focusing on the three most common reportable STDs in the country: chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis the risk factors for STI and new research around what STI risk factors are, screening and treatment guidelines, Um, in the light that the the treatment guidelines meeting was just held about a month ago, so some of these are changing. i will give you a preview of what's coming, and then ending with future research. So the reason why I'm giving this talk all over (coughs) the region in the southeast now is because we're having increasing rates of STI across the country particularly been happening since 2013, and it's a 31% increase when you look at gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis together. These continue to be the most commonly reported diseases, and as much as public, some people in the public like to put their head in the sand and think sex doesn't happen, um, it does, and STI is rise. True for, in New Hampshire, and I can also say for Alabama, if you ignore the problem, it doesn't go away. So what's unique about pregnant women, a couple obvious, maybe not so obvious points. They're obviously sexually active. They do have an increased susceptibility to infection because of the cervical ectropion that happens with pregnancy because of some of the hormonal shifts. If you look at the cost effectiveness analyses for STI screening, it's predominantly linked to birth outcomes. So it's the maternal and fetal risks and outcomes that drive screening, that drive funding, Um, In some ways, it's an easier way to go to Congress and say we're focusing on maternal and child health um, than than other, um, maybe more stigmatized places, which unfortunate as that is. This is a a slide uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine article talking about chlamydia-ascending infection and related to infertility. But the point I want to make for you here is that fortunately during pregnancy, around seven weeks gestation, there's a very nice cervical mucus plug that forms Um, which has a lot of IgG in it. Some IgE Peter could speak to the mucosal immunity in this area. Um, That prevents most bacteria from ascending. Not impossible, but less likely to ascend. Obviously, bacteremia is the way that the fetus can still be infected. When you're thinking about vertical transmission of infection, this is the place that you want to focus on. The maternal arteries with the blood pool This is where the exchange of the nutrients happens for the fetus. And if there's spirochetemia, (coughs) HIV viremia, malaria parasitemia, it's this membrane that's crossed that leads to fetal infection and the adverse fetal outcomes. If you look at the cellular level, this is the syncytiotrophoblast layer. So the malaria hones into this layer, crosses that membrane, and then leads to the devastating fetal outcome. The other interesting thing about pregnancy, like HIV, is the immune changes that happen as the pregnancy continues. Because there are paternal antigens that the, the, the body doesn't want to reject, there is uterine entrapment of antigen presenting cells, there's chemokine gene signals, uh, silencing by decidual stromal cells, expansion of uh, maternal Tregs, and even release of tolerogenic placental debris into the maternal circulation. So these are the reasons why someone may be not susceptible when she's not pregnant, becomes pregnant, and is newly susceptible to malaria, for example, even though she has pre-existing um, immunity, IgG, uh, to the organism. There's also immune modulation by progesterone, but when you read these papers, you can tell it's sort of uh, not very well understood exactly what the increases in estrogen and progesterone do during the, the later stages of pregnancy. I think it's important, but how this it's mediated is not clear. So this is a slide I put together when I talk to students and fellows to distinguish between the organisms like T. pallidum that can cause bloodstream infection. Even with primary infection, you can get disseminated disease, as you know. The placental infection leads to inflammation, particularly IL-6, IL-1, TNF-alpha, and then P9. And then these are the adverse outcomes we're trying to prevent. So it's focusing on preterm delivery, which is delivery before 37 weeks gestational age, IUGR, intrauterine birth restriction, <coughs> congenital infection in stillbirth, which is a particularly common outcome with syphilis. With GC and CT, other lower genital tract infections, the risk for the fetus is really exposure in the birth canal with a vaginal delivery, and the outcomes are neonatal pneumonia, a family and neonatorum, preterm delivery, which is more strongly associated with gonorrhea, and neonatal sepsis. For a co-infected woman, her risk is higher of getting STIs if she has HIV, getting HIV if she has STIs, so those risks always go together. We know that pregnancy alone increases susceptibility to HIV about twofold. Um, so these, it's always good to think about these together, since women are at risk of more than one thing at a time. So the basics of chlamydia. I just wanted to remind you of the CDC 2014 lab guidelines. Um, No one should be calling you and asking for chlamydia culture. It's very hard to culture, possible, but not really very frequently done. That is a recommended test method. And although we used to rely on um, clinician-collected samples, self-collected vaginal swabs are the recommended way to get these tests. So we have new sensitive testing we didn't have 20 years ago. That explains part of the increase in gonorrhea and chlamydia rates, but not all. Um, many labs adopted that testing about 10 years ago, so this increase in the past five years is not just because of better testing. Start with a case, just to make sure you're awake. This is a very common presentation, 23-year-old black female, G1P0, 16 weeks pregnant, coming in for her first visit, not great um, cranial care. She's asymptomatic. You do a urine chlamydia test, her NAP comes back positive 48 hours later. She's monogamous with her male partner. <coughs> One of the fellows in the audience, how do you treat her? What's her treatment of choice? It's not a trick question,
0: it's really. Uh,
1: It's a pretty gentle audience. Be brave, speak up.
0: Um, I think without knowing the guidance actually, I I think I would just treat her with, uh, although I would have to look up the pregnancy uh, safety with, um, uh, azithromycin. Perfect. And then uh, the question is, should we also treat for gonorrhea, (coughs) so don't trust Mm -hmm.
1: the test. Mm Um, so what's nice about pregnancy is, in general, the treatment guidelines in pregnancy are the same as non-pregnant women. So working it up is always the right answer, um, but azithromycin, if you remember it for the non-pregnant women, is the same thing in pregnant women. In general, if you have the azithromycin, the, the gonorrhea test was also done at the same time. So it's GC negative. And CT positive, you can give her azithromycin for treatment. What else do you want to do? Do you want, first, for the third question, the second question, follow-up testing? Yes.
0: What does she need? Uh, I think she needs to repeat urine in, uh, or actually she probably needs a gentle swab before the verticator
1: The recommendation is to do a test of cure at four weeks. Okay. So just be careful with the timing, because that dead or dying organism is going to be there at least for 14 days. So any repeat net within 14 days can be difficult to interpret. Yeah. After 14 days, it's a really believable result if it's still positive. But the recommendation is 28 days. Okay. That is really not because you suspect chlamydia to be resistant, but the risk of reinfection is so high if you're not thinking about partner therapy. What a three is trying to get you to think of is to prevent reinfection, you have to consider your partner. Exactly. And what are your thoughts then on the lower sensitivity of urine chlamydia in a woman? Then? It is lower, it's about 10% lower. It's this, this last slide with the CDC. Um, so you can see in the bottom, the first catch urine specimen is 10%, but it's still so sensitive. So in our studies where we have a 2,000 women enrolled comparing to vaginal and urine samples, it, they're, they're both excellent. This is not um, – <clears throat> productive infections lead to many organisms, and it's very easy to pick up. So I, don't, I would do a urine if, if that was easiest for the patient. Um, if she was willing, I would do a vaginal swab. And Judy, is that test of cure recommendation specific to pregnancy? Because I think you don't recommend that in the non pregnant population. Exactly. It's specific to pregnancy. When you're thinking of test of cure in general, you want to do them for patients when you're using a not standard therapy. So if you're treating gonorrhea with a not standard therapy, test of cure you want to think of. In pregnancy, the chlamydia test of cure is important. I'll show you some data on that too. Great. Sure. Right. Yeah, and she also she gets re-screened at 3 months. She does. Again, back to, until exactly. Play. So it's a test of cure 4 weeks. She's only 16 weeks now, so she has plenty of time to acquire it even if the test of cure is negative so she gets re-screened at yeah. 12 weeks. And what about HIV testing? Every time. Now, again later, just once, the partner, what would you do? No. No, no, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Very good. You're not already I don't have to <laughs> preach to the choir. Oh. <laughs> So this is a national map on the 2019 report, but 2018 data is coming out in a couple of months, This the 2017 data. If you look at where HIV is in the country, it really would overlap perfectly with where chlamydia is in women. Um, women in, uh, African-American women in the South are disproportionately impacted by HIV and STI. Um, so I should highlight this in every slide I gave in the South to make sure people know what they're seeing. Unlike some other STIs, particularly syphilis is different, but chlamydia is an infection that is disproportionately affecting women and young women. And the reasons why it's not exactly clear, it has something to do, again, with cervical ectropion and susceptibility, it has something to do with immunity, although Will Geisler at UAD is doing <coughs> chlamydia and immunology studies, and understanding why the immunity drops, why the immunity increases so much after age 30 is, is still something they're, they're trying to understand. But 15 to 24 is always the highest-risk age group for chlamydia, for pregnancy. Um, This this is the group we're focusing on. You always want to give local data when you give a talk. So I wanted to look at what the New Hampshire latest numbers were. This is from 2017. You can see um, the number three counties are Stratford, Hillsborough, and Grafton. And like the national numbers, the case rate among females is about twice as high as the case rate among males. Um, with the highest rate in age 20 to 24. So chlamydia in New Hampshire matches chlamydia around the country, with the with the exception of the racial um, the racial disparities here, but the, the um, population is obviously less. Um, I'm happy to say my hometown of Bennington does not have such a high chlamydia rate, um, but Washington County, Chitton County, and Orange County are the top three for people who um, take care of uh, patients in Vermont. I know, Jeff, you still have a clinic in Vermont? I oh, do yeah. Awesome. All right, so that's chlamydia. Any questions about basic chlamydia
0: epidemiology before we go to gonorrhea? We've got a couple of cases of LGV here yeah. in the last year or so, one recently. Is there anything going on nationally with that?
1: The problem with LGB is the testing. Okay. So what we do is we have a, a someone mm-hmm. with a, a compatible clinical syndrome, and they have a positive rectal nat. We can do LGB testing in our chlamydia lab. Mm-hmm. Um, short of that. And when I give talks in other places, I tell them to send it to CDC, and then they send it to our lab for testing. So it's really a diagnostic problem from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. I think most clinicians, when you go to STI conferences, the Europeans recognize this very well. HIV providers see it pretty frequently. We have a low threshold in our clinic to give 21 days to treat presumptively, even if we're not sure if the diagnosis is real. Um, University of Washington has had some very impressive cases they presented recently. Just a month ago, they so, it's one of those diseases which I think is much more prevalent than we recognize because our diagnostic ability has fallen behind. Um, but the suspicion, clinical suspicion mixed with a positive rectal CT is often enough to treat if you can't get the test. Was it was it an impressive proctitis? Yeah.
0: Yeah, from um, cases.
1: Yeah. This is GAF data. So, in the US, we have gonococcal GISP data to look at the, the susceptibility. <coughs> Um, in our country to gonorrhea with NAT testing. We can detect the organism, but we can't detect culture sensitivity to see what's happening with Cifixime. And this is to give you the the scary foreshadowing um, of the proportion of gonorrhea that has resistance to Cifixime and is expected to become resistant to subtrinorzone. So this is that specter on the horizon of untreatable gonorrhea that um, has led to a lot of AMR funding and, and concern in the community to do something.
0: What's going on in Greenland? <laughs> That's
1: a good question. I don't I don't know much about it. It both, the both Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is really fascinating is when you look at natural malaria, Southeast Asia is a fascinating area in terms of resistance. Because whether it's E. coli, malaria, um, tuberculosis, gonorrhea, Southeast Asia is often where this comes from and then it spreads. So Antimicrobial exposure is certainly part of the story, but I think there may be more to it than that. Some of the malaria people think there's genetic differences, at least for malaria, that are relevant. So the gonorrhea map looks very similar to the chlamydia map. Fortunately, in Vermont and New Hampshire, their rates are quite low. I want to show you that these increases I was mentioning since 2013 are in every region. So the Northeast is not left out of this trend. South is on the top, Northeast is on the bottom. They're all increasing, especially over the past five years. And when I talked with Beth Ailey in Concord a few years ago, she was dealing with this gonorrhea outbreak. And they were seeing to see if they could get CDC involved. I don't know if any of you were involved in this. It sounds like most of it was in Manchester. um, And they felt like they understood the epidemic in terms of the risk population. So CDC chose not to send any ads officer to help out. And I think with their contact tracing and their increased focus on testing and treatment, they were able to bring the rates back down. Love to tell me afterwards if there's more. I'd love to hear more of that story if you know it. Um, these are the gonorrhea data from New Hampshire. Um, again, the things that I want to point out to you: the male, the case rate in males is about twice that in females. Only 5% of the adults with gonorrhea in 2017 were HIV infected. So this is not happening in our HIV infected group. It's mostly HIV uninfected. And predominantly in Manchester, Nashua,
0: the urban areas of New Hampshire. Do you think that's a PrEP situation? I
1: think it's a great question. There's no doubt. I mean, almost all the PrEP studies are showing STI incidence of 50% over a 6-month or a 12-month period. It's shocking. Um, I don't know how good PrEP access is here. I know in Boston, it's excellent. Do you have a lot of PrEP clinics that people are able to
0: access very easily? There's, um, yes, but kind of, but people aren't accessing it. So okay. Actually, there's not a lot of PrEP prescription. In That's interesting.
1: Even when you look at the data from Atlanta, the PrEP clinics are all in the wealthy neighborhoods, and if you look at the PrEP need and the PrEP risk profiles, they're not, I mean, granted, you're in the same city, you can access those clinics, but the problem with PrEP in my mind is getting into the population who needs it. We have eight young men a week who are coming in with new HIV infection, and if you ask them if they know about PrEP, most of the time they say no, even in 2019. Still so much to do. We've made a long way. a lot of progress in HIV, but there's still so much to do. Um, it is interesting to me that the MSM in these diarrhea cases is actually quite a low proportion. In national numbers, many more of the cases of, of gonorrhea and MSN. And again, the, the cases in Vermont, the rates in Vermont are, are much lower. So epidemiology of syphilis, this is showing you the syphilis organism. This is the T-pallidum invading in between the endothelial blood cells. This is a secondary infection. This is T-pallidum in um, the dermis uh, when you have the dissemination with the cutaneous skin rash. And you can imagine what happens at the placenta. It's sort of the same story. Primary primary and secondary syphilis is a little bit different. This is an infection that's much more Mm -hmm. common in men and MSM. But the congenital syphilis rates are increasing. And we'll talk more about the data about whether or not those two um, epidemics are linked. In New Hampshire, the increase in primary, secondary, and early, latent has been from 38 cases in 2013 to 79 cases in 2017, so a very real increase. Like national numbers, predominantly among MSM, and about in one in four in 2017 were HIV co infected. So, I mean, Rich, your question's well taken. I think all of this, it, you have to think about it in light of are these um, people preventing themselves from getting HIV but um, not against STI? A lot of discussion about the 211. Um, should we be offering pre exposure prophylaxis for STI along with prep packages for HIV? Answers sort of out still, three parts that going on to look at it more closely. Um, so primary and secondary syphilis in Vermont is not very common, fortunately. Um, and the last time I was here, I really focused on syphilis and pregnancy. So I tried not to put too many um, slides on it this time for you. But just as a reminder, transplacental infection can occur at any gestational age. The placenta doesn't truly form until around 12 weeks. So it was thought for a period of time that it was impossible to have transplacental infection before then. But you can find evidence in, um, at a fetal stage as early as nine weeks of, of syphilis. This infection spreads widely, and it's devastating to the fetus. It leads to devastating complications in 60 to 90% of women. This is like measles infectiousness. It's not difficult for this organism to transmit vertically. It's 98% preventable. if detected and treated appropriately. Since most women are asymptomatic, um, they may have an, a vaginal ulcer that they don't recognize, their partner doesn't recognize. Stream is the only way to bring these case rates down. In women with HIV, syphilis infection is associated with a two-fold increased risk of vertical HIV transmission. This is a nice PHCTG study, predominantly among women in Brazil, and predominantly in women who had pretty high serum and genital tract viral loads. So I don't think that the PMTCT risk would be as high in our patients, who are generally suppressed throughout pregnancy. But I do discuss this with my HIV um, pregnant patients about the risk of, of syphilis being um, of concern. Old data from 1959, kind of shocking what these rates are. If a pregnant woman gets early syphilis, 25% stillbirth, 14% neonatal death, 41% syphilitic infant, and 20% non-syphilitic infant. This is an organism that's easy to treat, it hasn't mutated over time very much. We should be doing better than this in 2019. This is the graph that led a bunch of people at CDC to get um, NIAID and NICHD all in the same room, saying we've got to do something about this trend. The congenital syphilis cases are in yellow, with time on the x-axis, and uh, the primary and secondary syphilis cases in women, obviously, is directly proportional. as the red line. So there was an increase from 639 cases of congenital syphilis to 918 cases in 2017, um, 44% increase over time, and this is leading to warning bells everywhere saying, what the heck is going on? Sarah Kidd at CDC did some nice work to try to understand what was underlying some of these changes, and what she saw, at least for the 628 cases reported in 2016, is 34% of these women had late or no prenatal care. 8% 8% had prenatal care but weren't screened in time to prevent congenital syphilis. 18% were screened but got inadequate treatment, which is shocking. We've been talking about treatment, it hasn't changed. And 16% had a reinfection, so their initial RPR was negative, they acquired infection during the second or third trimester, and didn't have that third trimester screen to pick it up later. Um, this explains some of the reason for the increase over the past five years, but not all of it. Access to care has always been an issue. I was looking at congenital syphilis data from the 20s and the 30s. And even then, 30% of women didn't have access to care. So another example where you think we would have made more progress. I think that in and of itself doesn't explain the increase. So a summary for the the background in part one. Rates of bacterial STI among women of reproductive age are increasing every region of the country. The adverse outcomes associated with STI and pregnancy are preventable, but it really relies on early diagnosis and treatment. Unfortunately, most of these women are not being seen by ID doctors. They're being seen in the community sometimes where they're not um, as familiar with STI management or even asking the STI questions. So, um, a lot of work is being done to try to train everyone in these these topics. Questions on that before we get to respect? So this is the laundry list that you always see. Women and men, these are the risk (coughs) factors for STI. And the problem is, is I bolded the ones that most providers have easy access to. I talk to sometimes community doctors who are living in Georgia, living in Alabama, and they say, I have no idea what my regional STI prevalence is. I don't know if I'm high risk, low risk. These guidelines that say screen if you're high risk don't help everyone if they don't know what their community prevalence. And unfortunately, they're often not doing the sexual history that we do in ID. They are not asking if the woman has multiple sex partners, or if their sex partners use IV drugs, or if mm-hmm. their sex partners have syphilis. The ob tendency is to focus on the person in front of them, which is a lot of us, what you've learned in medical school is the person in front of you. But if you're not asking about the risk factors, you're not going to screen, and you're going to miss the infection. History of STI, the, these are the things you can maybe get from the chart. Drug use, you have to ask. Transactional sex, you obviously The other problem with the risk-based screening is a woman may not know she's at risk. A woman honestly tells you she in a monogamous relationship, and she doesn't realize that she's not in a monogamous relationship. This is the reason why outreach and all the discussions that you do over the phone when providers call you with questions is so important. Just focus on the black, which is data from 2017. This is giving you the reporting source for all the people who have seen women with chlamydia in the U.S. And although 30% are private physicians, there's a big group in this other, which includes STD clinics who are very knowledgeable, but emergency rooms where they are sometimes less knowledgeable about how to manage HIV, jails where they're definitely not asking about sexual history. Um, There's a real grab bag of where the (coughs) diagnoses are coming from with all different levels of comfort and discomfort in asking the the sex questions. The family planning clinics are doing very well, obviously, and the STI clinics are but only 3.8% of these CT cases were from STI clinics. So we can focus our attention on those providers, but we're missing the large, the lion's share of the people who are seeing the patients we need to see. So while I set my study up in Africa, I sort of had some time on my hands, so I said, why don't we look at what's happening with STI, first locally, and then nationally. So we focused on, in Alabama, we have about 3,500 patients with HIV, about 800 of them are women. So this is the 745 women who were seen in our HIV clinic between 2013 and 2015. Um, the, the part of the reason for this was, despite these increasing rates, I talked to my women's health nurse practitioner recently, said, we just are not seeing that much syphilis gonorrhea and chlamydia despite these numbers. And this bears it out. So of 745 women, we only had 19 positive tests in a clinic in Alabama where they all have HIV. Um, but this is an aging population across the country. This median age is 47, it's, it's, um, and 54% of them have had HIV for more than 10 years. So this is the whole concept where women and men are not at the same risk pattern or risk behavior over time. They probably had risk factors 10 years ago, but a lot of the women I'm taking care of today are like, stop asking me about sex. I don't do that anymore. I'm done with that. That's in my past. So um, I think that coming with a broad stroke and saying everyone needs to be screened the same, it really doesn't make sense in our epidemic now. This is one of our social workers, giving you an example of how we ask patients who are included in the CFAR-Scenics cohort study, <coughs> patient-reported outcome questions. So if the provider doesn't want to admit that they have three partners that they're using heroin, they may not tell me because they have a social desirability bias, but they often will tell the computer. So when they're asked about sexual practices, condom use, drug use, I have that information when I go in to talk to them and I can say, I know we talked about this before, but it looks like you are back to using cocaine, let's talk about that. It's it's very helpful from a research perspective and from a clinical care perspective. And this is what you learn in this 20 to 13 cohort um, on these patient-reported outcomes. 39% of our female patients are not having sex, or report not having sex. 7% are using drugs. That's a combination of cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and opiates, and cocaine is most of what they're using. Nineteen percent have sex with an HIV-positive partner. Vast majority of those partners are taken care of in our clinic and are undetectable. Only nine percent have unknown HIV status partners, so that's great progress over time. Of the women who are using sex, who are having sex, fifty percent of them use condoms always, one hundred percent of the time. To distinguish this from when we study the men in STI, 7% of the men in our clinic use condoms 100% of the time. There's a huge difference when you compare the behaviors of the women and the men in our clinic. Maybe surprising, maybe not surprising. I don't know, not so surprising. Um, And this is the STI data. So trichomonas is the outlier in the sense that it's pretty common at every age group. But the point of this slide is that though even about 2% of our patients are in the 19 to 24 age group, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis really drops off in a large majority of who our patients are. So I said, is this representative of what's happening around the country? I could use this data from the cfar scenics cohort to look at CD4, look at viral load, look at behavior, and see what was happening with chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. This was presented at Croy. So the first point to make is all of those clinics that are part of Scenics are across the top. The screening rates are very variable. On average, 42% of women were screened for chlamydia during the most recent year in care. But there's a wide range in the proportion of screening that's done. CDC recommends screening all adults with HIV at least once if they're sexually active. Not all these women were sexually active, so these rates are, should not be 100%, but they should probably be better than 31%. Same data, when you same pattern as what we saw in Birmingham. When you look at the positivity over time by age, the 18 to 24 and 25 to 29 is where most of the disease is. The cost effectiveness analyses tell you that it is only cost effective to screen annually for chlamydia at a prevalence above 3%. So we are screening a lot of 50 year olds for chlamydia and maybe that money can be used better elsewhere. Gonorrhea data is similar. And to get at whether or not this was um, related to biology, related to, to risk behaviors, we could link in the PRO data. This is not to say that women above 50 don't have sex or don't um, are not at risk of STI, but when you look at inconsistent condom use, sex after drugs and alcohol, sex partner with an unknown status, and two or more sex partners, there's a clear decline over time with age and women in this group. With our biostatisticians at UAB, we had this idea of using the new machine learning, where you can plug into algorithms every piece of data that you have in the electronic medical record to try to understand who's really at the highest risk. I thought we could make something like a pool risk score like they have for cardiology and help providers figure out who needs to be screened when they're seeing them. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, what it came out to be is bearing out the old data. Age is the most important factor by far. No matter when you plug in prior STI, IV drug use, race, access to healthcare, all of those really fall off. This is age on the x-axis and <coughs> contribution of age to the log odds of positive GCCT. Um, so we're we're writing the paper now, but we're working on different thresholds to look at what that cutoff should be. Um, but I don't have a fancy algorithm to be able to share with you, unfortunately. <coughs> So back to syphilis, this increase in rates and all the concern that was happening really nationwide. CDC kept asking, what is going on? What's happening in women? What's different? Access to care is not great, but it's never been as good as it should be. Is there bridging? When you're seeing the rates in MSM go off the charts, you have people talking about the down low phenomenon and this bridging, meaning men who have sex with men and women were um, leading to the congenital syphilis outbreak, and that was sort of the leading hypothesis. It's difficult to prove that hypothesis, but then newer data has come out sort of refuting that, and I think this is really interesting. So this is from CDC and Sarah Kidd, 2013 to 2017 on the x-axis, and the percent of women reporting, women and men, reporting injection drug use among uh, primary and secondary syphilis cases. And what you see is the yellow line on the bottom is MSM, no increase. But among women and men who have sex with women, significant increase over time. They were able to stratify this by um, methamphetamine use, heroin use, and opiate use and see the same trend. In the 90s, the STI epidemic was fueled by the crack cocaine epidemic. So it's kind of a repeat of history to see this association of drug use and STI that's not really um, as relevant perhaps, among men who have sex with men. At the same time, we were looking at this data within the CNH cohort that I mentioned before. So this was um, also presented at CROI. What we wanted to do was focus on women. A lot of studies of syphilis really include men because most of the cases are in men, leaving you limited ability to see what's happening in women. So we wanted to see what the predictors were and see if they were different. Um, These are the eight sites. We looked at women who had an HIV clinic visit between January 2005 and December 2016. We excluded transgender women. I'm analyzing them separately. And the beauty is you can pull all the clinical and laboratory data in so you know that the syphilis is truly syphilis, uh, based on laboratory testing at least. So what we ended up with is um, 4,700 women in care. 92% of them were tested for syphilis at least once. 9% of them had positive syphilis testing, and there were 119 cases of incident syphilis during follow-up. That was defined as a negative converting to a positive screening test. Most of them were using traditional algorithm, or a four-fold increase in the RPR type. As I mentioned, cocaine is the most common of the more serious drug use. I don't put marijuana in that category um, because our data shows that marijuana use (laughs) is not as linked to sexual increases in sexual behaviors. If you look at active use, the proportions are smaller than prior use, obviously, but these are common um, issues we manage in our clinic, and I know you do too. In our model, not to go through all the data, just sort of show you the money slide, we found that focusing on women age 18 to 49 who were at risk of congenital syphilis, black race, IV drug use as the HIV acquisition risk factor, And hepatitis C co-infection were strong, independent predictors of incident syphilis in this cohort of women with HIV. So this wasn't really seen before. It's difficult to focus just on women with HIV, um, since many studies are focusing on men. This is very um, uh, of great interest to CDC and people trying to understand where to put their dollars. If there's an intersection between the drug use epidemic and the FTI epidemic, then we can link our response to those two at the same the annual incident rate was 760 cases for 100,000 person years, and that CDC data I showed you earlier, the general population data is 2.9 cases per 100,000, so the numbers are astronomical in women with HIV. Race, IV drug use, and hepatitis C co infection were independent risk factors, and this association, you have to think about what is happening, you know, it's not the hep C itself, it's that the hepatitis C is a... a is an indicator of drug use or drug behaviors. And I hypothesize transactional sex. These are women who are using sex to support their drug habit or get money to support their drug habit, and that's what's leading to the high-risk behaviors. Um, a whole different set of interventions if, compared to if this was a bridging phenomenon, if you follow me. The implications are that there is an intersection between these two. Um, CDC is very interested in understanding this in more detail, so we're doing some fine-tuning of the analysis. It should be. Um, submitted to a journal within a couple weeks, and also gender stratified models are really useful. You can't see the pattern in women when everything is driven by MSM. You have to look separately to see what the predictors are. Um, Pregnant women are at particular risk of adverse outcomes, as you know, and that also means the current syphilis screening recommendations may not be good enough, especially in women with HIV. Um, We need novel intervention studies, but we'll get that to the end.
2: Questions about risk factors? Can I ask you a quick question about the screening algorithm? Just because you had mentioned it, and I've been having to give a few talks on syphilis recently because of our increasing congenital syphilis. Oh, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, but it seems that the non-traditional or the reverse algorithm would actually be better at picking up syphilis, specifically in pregnant women, just because they have the propensity to potentially have false negative RPRs. We'll get back to that. I have a whole study. Okay, you do. On that. So, if you still question, all part, right, yeah, you
1: But good question. So that, that study of Scenics is women with HIV, but they weren't necessarily pregnant. They didn't catch pregnancy outcomes in CNIX, so I can't tell you how many of them were pregnant. I can tell you with a separate study that we did. We looked at all the pregnant, many of the pregnant women who delivered at our facility, 210, between 2000 and 2014. And this is already a very different age group. The mean age is 26. So this is different than the women that we're seeing for the most part in HIV clinic. Um, 64% black. 41% had less than a 12th grade education. Alabama has some of the lowest educational attainment levels in the country. Second to
2: Mississippi, they always say, thank
1: God for Mississippi. <laughs> um, and this is the STI prevalence. So very different than the last slide I showed you, about one in three women with HIV had an STI in pregnancy. And about one in five of HIV-uninfected matched groups also had, it, had an STI. Most of it was gonorrhea or TRIC. Um, the rates of syphilis were very low. Um, But this was really striking. These numbers were very striking. In this model, we looked for factors associated with prevalent and incident STI. And what we found was that HIV status alone was independently associated with higher odds with an adjusted odds ratio of 3.0 for prevalent STI and 7.2 for an adjusted STI. I can't look at behavioral patterns in this study for the reasons that are obvious to you. Pregnant women are not going to admit to their OBGYN providers that they're using drugs or even drinking alcohol because of social desirability. The laws are so strong right now in Alabama that every woman knows coming in that if she even has a positive urine test for marijuana, the baby's being taken away from her in the hospital. So they, are, they may tell me, but they're definitely not telling their OB providers about anything that they're doing. So the ability to link this to behaviors in pregnant women, that research is extremely challenging because they're just not going to be honest with you. Nationally, the point of this slide is that um, the CDC looked at all the women who were pregnant with syphilis between 2012 and 2016, so on the right column, it's about 10,000 women. The common risk factors were there, 43% had prior STI, 30% had more than one sex partner in pregnancy, and 15% had sex while intoxicated. But sometimes the OBGYNs focus too much on these risk factors. don't recognize that 50% had no recognized risk factor. That may be because they didn't ask, and maybe because the woman didn't know she had a risk factor. But if we rely on risk factors to identify who to screen, again, we're missing too many women who need to be screened. This is the opposite of the cost effectiveness argument in 50-year-old women. These are the women who are already pregnant. The drawback to screening them, I think, is very, very small. So the summary for this part is that some pregnant women living with HIV are at high risk of STI. I don't think that those rates would be replicated in every (coughs) HIV patient that sees pregnant women with HIV, but that's what we see. The mechanism is unclear. I think a lot of it is probably behavioral, but there may be a biologic mechanism also. Most of our women with HIV are well-controlled in pregnancy, so it's not that their CD4s are low and they're off medicine. We have those patients, but most of them are not. Risk-based STI screening is going to miss some of the cases you want to pick up. I think there's pretty clear evidence of overlap between the STI and the drug use epidemic in women. And because women with drug use and hepatitis C have higher rates, they should be screened more frequently um, for STI. So, questions on that?
0: Just to clarify, Judy, you're talking about screening at all. You're not talking about repeat screening. Right. Screening at all. So, there's no state law anymore. We're getting to the Alabama.
1: Okay. Yeah, so in Alabama, um, syphilis, syphilis is interesting because there's a large variability in how many states mandate. Most states mandate uh, initial screening, HIV and SCI screening at the first visit. Yeah. Some states mandate 28 week screening. Georgia just put that into yeah. law a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and it made a significant difference in the proportion of women who were tested. You have to mandate some things to increase rates. Alabama did the opposite. <laughs> So they had a second; they had a 28-week requirement that they took away, and the mm-hmm. state person who does congenital syphilis was explaining to me how much of a problem that was, because for them to track down the cases after the fact and do something about it when it's already happened is impossible. So I think that that laws are an answer. It's like getting rid of the philosophical vaccine. You know, you have those debates at the state legislature level, and they get really heated. This is a place where legislature can help. If they're on your side. <laughs> All right, so screening and treatment. So we'll talk more about that, Mary Margaret. So um, just to give you three highlights, some of the big topics of discussion last month were changes in gonorrhea and chlamydia treatment. Coming down the pipe, I'll share with you what those were. A lot of discussion of mycoplasma genitalium. What's the significance of this emerging STI, which is seen in 15 to 25 percent of young women, particularly African-American women? Some association with adverse birth outcomes, more association with urethritis, Um, not a great diagnostic test, although one was recently approved, that's new, and the therapies for Mgen are really limited. So it's struggling with what do we do about this STI, which maybe we can now diagnose, but the first and second line treatments are not working very well. We have a study of a 70% resistance rate to first line therapy and a 40% resistance rate to second line therapy in Menhoff's. The other exciting debate, like, should we be calling this STD or STI? Um, our patients feel that STD is quite stigmatizing. And instead of STD, they really prefer STI. So I'm happy to say that the majority of the people in the room, even some of the older people who were the holdouts, agreed to move to STI. So I think if CDC approves it, it will be the STI treatment guidelines. It takes a long time to change things. So this is getting at what Mary Margaret was asking. Uh, even if you're just focusing on chlamydia screening in pregnancy, What's confusing for providers is the guidelines are all over the place. So just looking at pregnant women for a minute, USPSTF says all women less than 24. So if you're 25, you don't need to be screened for chlamydia. But if you look at CDC, it's less than equal to 24 or older women with risk factors, with the risk factors defined on the bottom. But the same problem with risk factors that we already talked about, where the woman or the provider may not know if the risk factors are there. I prefer ACOG. ACOG says, let's screen all women in pregnancy. Um, let's screen them at the first visit. Let's rescreen those high-risk women, um, younger women and high-risk women again. If you want to pick up this asymptomatic infection, you have to screen. AAP is in line with, um, with ACOG on this. And uh, AAFP doesn't have a specified. So the treatment will continue to be azithromycin, one gram. It's ninety-five percent effective in pregnancy. A little less effective in pregnancy than it is in non-pregnant women. Doxycycline is contraindicated during the second and third trimesters. Although, um, Peter, I heard that the Red Book was thinking about taking off the warning for doxycycline in children in the next edition. That was kind of interesting. So, um, at least
0: for short, short courses. Yeah, yeah.
1: Pablo Santos was telling me. I, so maybe this will change in pregnancy. I certainly know that obese are not anxious about ever trying doxycycline in a pregnant woman. Amoxicillin used to be considered an, a, a reasonable alternative. Newer studies have shown only eighty percent efficacy with amoxicillin, so do not use amoxicillin um, in pregnancy. Azithromycin is a class B. You don't use that, that those names anymore, but it's a, a safe medicine with good um, passage across the placenta, and it's very very effective. The change. For chlamydia for non-pregnant adults it's basically going to mean to move up doxycycline and move down the zithromycin. Because doxycycline is so much more effective for rectal chlamydia, and so many people have rectal chlamydia and it's not recognized or not screened enough for it, if they do what was discussed at the meeting, they'll put doxycycline as first line and zithromycin as an alternative. So that would be a pretty good change. It won't change for pregnant women, obviously. Recommend partner therapy. Test a cure after four weeks because reinfection is common, and repeat testing in three months. So once you have a positive, you're on a pattern of looking for it more frequently. Um, That makes sense. A third trimester HIV screening test, um, if the first trimester screening test was negative. One of the really, um, I think, preventable cases of vertical HIV transmission in southern Alabama recently was a woman who had chlamydia repeatedly in pregnancy and didn't have a repeat HIV test. And her viral load was 10 million, and a baby had HIV. And, um, in retrospect, it seems like it could have been forwarded. Um, gonorrhea recommendations are ceftriaxone and azithro. So like the non-pregnant adult, you can think about the exact same thing. The change for gonorrhea is actually going to be also getting rid of azithromycin. The concern about azithro is there's so much increasing resistance to azithromycin around the world that adding it as a second agent to prevent resistance, the science doesn't really back up that. So the dose may go to 500 milligrams. Gail Bolin, who's the head of the Division of STD Prevention, is sort of weighing the PK data to see if she wants to go to 500 or keep it at 250. Um, but I think that the, the case was made very clearly to drop the azithromycin from this. This is one of those non-helpful parts of the STD treatment guidelines that said you can use spectinomycin, but it's not available in the US, and so just consult ID. But if you're ID, you don't really know what to do because there's no obvious answer. When they call us around the region, we talk about if we should use azithromycin. You obviously don't want to use a fluoroquinolone. Any non line regimen, you're going to do a test of cure. Most of the time, cetraxin can be given safely. You've all seen the data on how many people truly have a penicillin allergy um, compared to the people who think they have a penicillin allergy. And a lot of really great studies going on for inpatient and outpatient um, proof to patients and providers that the penicillin allergy is not the syphilis screening guideline is an A. This is initial screening. They don't come out and say that it needs to be done three times. But what makes sense and what was discussed at the meeting in Mary and Margaret, I think what will be in the guidelines for all pregnant women in the setting of these congenital syphilis rates is first visit, 28 to 32 weeks. I was really arguing strongly for 28 weeks to try to give time for treatment, and then repeat strain at delivery. In Alabama, just like in New Hampshire, we have people who come to deliver who've had Um, prenatal care somewhere else or not at all. So if you miss that opportunity to test when you have them captive in front of you, you're missing the opportunity to at least treat the woman for syphilis after she's delivered and then monitor the baby very closely. Benzapine continues to be the option. 98% effective at preventing congenital disease if you deliver after 20 weeks. And desensitization is the answer to every board's question when you're asked. (laughs) Questions about um, treatment and screening guidelines. There's no other real changes in the guidelines for pregnancy that are coming up. Trichomonas mm-hmm. debate about screening in pregnancy. Right now, trichomonas' um, screening recommendation is for women with HIV alone, not
0: without so There's some discussion <coughs> around a second dose of benzathine for early-stage syphilis. Yeah. in pregnancy. Is that not pending?
1: So we definitely talked about that specifically. And the OBGYN who reviewed all the data, the way you do these guideline meetings is they have to look at every paper and abstract and non-published work they can find in the gray literature and then present it to their crowd of other experts. Uh, and what she found was some studies in China that they compared with pretty large sample sizes, one to two doses, and didn't see any difference in outcomes. One dose gets across the placenta very well. There's other historical retrospective studies showing that the single dose in any gestation prevents congenital syphilis outcomes if it's given early enough. So there was some, I would say they were toying with the idea of moving to two, but I think the CDC is going to stick with what they already have, given the quality of the data. I don't think two is a crazy idea, to be honest.
2: But um, the, the the preponderance of the data is that one is enough. And then, Jody, the screening recs for pregnancy, that's now going to be regardless of risk factors, recommended uh, first trimester or third trimester delivery, because right now it's stated as if they have any risk factors, I then you should be screening three times. But if not, then that one time screening. They hear the same question because C D C has these S T D hotlines and they
1: get called every day, all day. This is where I live, this is my street, tell me if <laughs> I need to screen <laughs> yeah. or not. And they just don't they,
2: they recognize how that's fraught with, with error. And when we spoke about this even here, if you look at New Hampshire as a whole from the national standpoint, we are not high. Right. But if you get down county level, there are counties that reach above that 3% or that threshold where you would say you're high prevalence, you should be screening three times in pregnancy all the time.
1: And the problem is in a world with Grindr and Manhunt and social media apps to find your partner, where you reside is not always the same person you're having sex with. So, linking it to where they live, if you have ticks in your backyard, maybe makes sense, but for sex
2: partners, it really doesn't make sense. Actually, not even (laughs) ticks. People hike. And then the one change, sorry, for the doxy. So, the one thing um, I worry a little bit about is that that's not a one time dose, right? Exactly. So mm-hmm. I worry about adherence and finishing the actual dose. At least right now with the regimen as it is, you DOT it in the office. That's the whole, done, we, the whole discussion. The whole discussion. is long-term out Young people.
1: There, there is even a report recently that shows that when you when they leave the ER with a seven-day dose of
2: doxycycline, when you look at like the eighteen to twenty-year-olds, fifty percent of them don't even fill it. Yeah, i just wonder about worsening resistance and breeding resistance in a drug that you right, know, right now works for a lot of things.
1: So if this was a situation where the pediatricians were like on one. In the room, and they were all like, "We think this idea is crazy because we think doxycycline is going to be problematic for just that reason." Mm-hmm. The problem is the rectal chlamydia data is really convincing. The prevalence of rectal chlamydia in our clinic is as high as twenty-five percent. So if you're treating and and eradicating from the urethra and the vagina, but not from the rectum and not from the pharynx. That's where people get concerned. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So uh,
1: the, way that, the way they did it this time is all the experts sort of put their opinion in, and they're going to decide at CDC what they want to go with. So maybe it will be different. But th- that was the discussion. It was really strong, um, data-driven <coughs> recommendation to move to doxy.
2: You wonder whether
0: people will have their cake and eat it, too, and give the dose and zip throw yeah. <laughs> and give prescription for doxycycline.
1: Yeah. That is okay. That's not a crazy, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. you never want to give more <laughs> antibiotic than you need, but the other big problem is partner therapy. What do you do with partner therapy? You're not going to write a partner for seven days yeah. medicine, yeah. someone you haven't seen. Um, so there's, there's problems all over, but I think the azithromycin increase is real, the Europeans took it off their guidelines when they wrote them a couple of years ago, um, the GC, the prevalence of azithromycin resistant GC is, is 50% in some And the way they write the guidelines is that there's actually good information why two is better than one to prevent resistance. But when you look at the actual studies, it's not convincing at all. What about, like, on the name? What about the new um, gonorrhea Um, anti-veilotic? We're talking about that, too. (laughs) All right, so relevant research. It's good. I like the the, um, discussion. So um, for me, EPT is one of the answers to this. We need to think about expedited partner therapy, especially in pregnancy. But OBGYNs in particular, a lot of providers are not thinking from a public health standpoint and partners are focusing on the person in front of them. There is a push now in OBGYN to be fair that a lot of them are saying we need to be better about this. And this is a nice editorial if you have time to look at it. It sort of went through the data, Okiema Beji's the, at the University of Michigan, and she did a study in 2012 showing that the risk of recurrence when you use EPT is zero in pregnancy. And if you don't use EPT, it's between 20 and 40%. So the data is pretty clear that EPT works. Um, there are a number of pros and cons um, that are part of the discussion. I wanted to look at this question. This is actually, I'm finishing my, um, uh, my MSPH degree now in clinical and translational epidemiology. And I wanted to look at how often there's persistent and recurrent chlamydia infection in pregnancy. So I pulled the data from 2012 and 2017. We had 16,000 deliveries with prenatal chlamydia screening, almost 10% of them had chlamydia detected, and most of them had repeat testing in pregnancy. Some were close to delivery. They didn't have time. But if you follow these lines with me, early chlamydia tested cure at three to six weeks was done in 56% of the cases, and it was positive 11% of the time. I didn't do four weeks because this was time from positivity. It may not have been time from treatment, so imagine about four weeks from treatment. And then... Many of them had a repeat test again afterwards, and 33% had a persistent positive. So they never cleared their chlamydia at all. What I'm doing now is intercalating all the data about what did they get treated with, and how often did they get treated, and were the partners notified? Because I want to understand this. (coughs) But even of the women who were negative at the test of cure, 14% of them had incident chlamydia again. I mean, this is the reason for the 12-week follow-up test. But this is ping pong, right? There may be some information about a lot of these women, not a lot, a small proportion of them got amoxicillin. So I'm going to look at amoxicillin compared to azithromycin to see if that's part of the story. And the women who only had late chlamydia follow-up testing, who missed that tested cure window, 27% were positive. So we're doing something wrong. They're doing something wrong, and we're doing something wrong. But these rates are really too high to have recurrence and uh, reinfection syphilis diagnostics. Antonio this gets to your question. So like Dartmouth did before I left, UAB switched from traditional to reverse algorithm in 2013. So many labs across the country now do the reverse algorithm. This is our data. We compared the two, but I just, for the sake of brevity, put the reverse algorithm data here for you. There were 11,000 tests performed over a three-year time period with a 0.7% EIA positivity. What's hard for people is this discordant box. So how do you manage the EIA positive, RPR negative pregnant woman if there's no evidence of, of prior treatment or prior infection in the past? The guidelines are to do another, better trust test, TPPA or but the studies in pregnant women are showing that they often do not confirm. So in our setting, the numbers are small, but we had 33% that were EIA positive, RPR negative, TPPA negative. Evidence of a false positive EIA with a lot of worry and concern in the woman and the teen. We don't want to diagnose syphilis and pregnancy in error. We think of a high specificity of a treponemal test compared to the non-specificity of an RPR test. But this algorithm is problematic. Part of the answer is using EIA cut-off values. Some labs have gone to looking at the rate of positivity, just like you can do for HSV. Um, serologies, and what we see is that if you look at EIA positive tire with an index value of 8, they're much more likely to confirm with a TPPA, but the sort of low positives, which is not the number the lab will give you because it's not approved as a quantitative test, is more likely to be false positive. Just to warn you to be careful, in the reverse algorithm, if you have a woman who has, from what you can tell, no risk factors. With a positive EIA and negative RPR and a negative trep test, I would interpret that as most likely a false negative EIA. Most of them are going to get treatment anyway, but um, be aware of the limitations of these tests. So we have a lot more work to do to piece this together and come up with um, the next step study that needs to be done, but we're working on it to try to make this this easier. This is all we have. We don't have a great PCR test. We're stuck with antibody tests. And in pregnancy especially, they're problematic. Uh, there's also the need for point-of-care rapid testing. So we have a new pilot test we're doing now in Alabama and in Louisiana where we're getting a couple hundred rapid tests to show that for those women who are at very high risk of block follow-up, you can get the dose of benzathine in them before they even leave. This has revolutionized um, antenatal testing in Africa. Um, we haven't adopted it as much in the U.S. There's only a single point-of-care rapid test available, but I think it will not be difficult to show that it has a role in some clinical scenarios. I can't get this off without talking about stigma. Stigma in the South is intense. um, And stigma is defined as an attribute or a label that sets a person apart from others and links a labeled person to undesirable characteristics. This is a nice definition from Dennis Bordenberry. Being gay in the South is is stigmatizing for a lot of our patients already. So when they have HIV or STI, they feel like their family, their faith, um, um, shuns them. Not all of them, but much of the time. So focusing on women with these, this is a small qualitative study that Ron Lichtenstein did. Women felt like they were often blamed for their STI. They felt like they were either good women or bad women based on their STI results, dirty or clean. The sugar daddy phenomenon was very real. They said, I don't want to have sex with this person. I know that he's exposing me, but I want he's helping me pay for community college or he's helping me pay for my apartment and this is the deal. Um, Visibility clinic is a barrier, I definitely have patients who don't want to come and sit in our waiting room um, when they have HIV, let alone if they're coming to an STD clinic. Um, They may see their pastor, they may see their teacher, Um, it's a real problem. Overall mistrust of the health system, Tuskegee has long tentacles across the south. Every time you talk to them about treatments and diagnoses, they say, are you experimenting on me? Um, Not everyone, but it is is prevalent um, and a real problem. Um, you can get through that. A strong doctor-patient relationship overcomes all those concerns, but it, you have to build that over time. Um, educationally, not much is done at all around around sex in the South, but the focus that there is is on pregnancy prevention. No one's talking about consent or STI, risk behaviors. It's about preventing pregnancy. And the role of the church. I have a lot of patients who, for their family, the church is incredibly important. And the fact that they're stigmatized by their church leaders is... is um, really challenging for them to manage. So not my area of research, but I, I just have to at least mention it. Kathy Shu is in Boston, and she runs the New England um, STD Prevention Center. So I used to work with her when I was here. And she's saying with these rates, what we need in the country is a national prevention program. We have to get everyone together, public health, every provider. Let's put our brain together. We can figure this out. We can get to the moon. We can build a wall on the southern border, right? We also <laughs> have money for congenital syphilis prevention program. And I have to at least give one shout-out to Africa to say that although syphilis and STIs in the U.S. are really important, there are greater than 200,000 adverse birth outcomes related to syphilis. And increasing the antenatal syphilis screening in Africa would reduce the burden from 12.5 to 4 million disability-adjusted life years. By some estimates, 80% of stillbirths around the world would be reduced, would be eliminated if we could do 100% syphilis screening for pregnant. Um, this is a nice list, I forgot to put this. this is a nature reviews article of some of the challenges and a call to action wish list. The bottom, and maybe the most important, is always to look for new vaccines. We need one for gonorrhea, we need one for syphilis. Um, it's really important work, but really hard to do. There are some surface antigens, TPR antigens, um, and a new uh, grant from NIAID with about $16 million going to three groups across the country to work on syphilis and chlamydia vaccines, so maybe we'll make some progress in the next five to seven years. Um, some of the major research priorities, in my opinion, are improved syphilis diagnostics in pregnancy and in neonates, which neonates do you need to follow more closely than others. Treatment options for syphilis in pregnancy, we know that there are often density shortages, so although BPG is recommended, you don't always have it. True penicillin allergy, it's nice to have some options for the women who do have a true allergy. Um, admitting to the hospital really work. We have a good system in UAB and it it goes better, always goes better than the patient and the OB think it's going to. Um, Upscaling expedited partner therapy for STI and pregnancy is a no-brainer. If we don't figure out how to treat the partners, reinfection rates are never going to come down. Stigma reduction and access to care. Um, So the next time I come talk to you, Brian, what I can tell you is these are the RCTs we've been doing at UAB. Um, to try to work on some of these problems. I think descriptive studies are nice, retrospective studies can show you patterns, but you really need intervention studies often to make a difference when they're well designed. So the first one is my my study, my K23 study in Cameroon. It's a novel regimen to prevent malaria and STI in pregnant women with HIV. <coughs> the second is an niaid sponsored study that we're doing at UAB on the site investigator. We're comparing one versus three doses of benzathine, penicillin, sort of an old question. Um, but for adults with and without HIV, hopefully to show that um, 3 is not needed for uh, early syphilis for adults with HIV. A new study that we're just starting, this is a This is a multi-center international Phase three study. This is the new fluoroquinolone that Phase two was published in the New England Journal a couple of months ago. Um, 98% effective for the treatment of gonorrhea. So we're, we're, we're hopeful that this um, may be promising. And uh, it's about 900 adults who are going to be enrolled. And then most recently, a new multi phase 2 trial, looking at the efficacy of this um, FDA-licensed meningococcal vaccine, which there's some um, data that it may be effective at preventing gonorrhea in adults who are at risk of getting gonorrhea. So that cross-protection may not be up 100%, but it may be enough to um, be clinically relevant and really important to look at. I work with a pretty big team at UAB. These are some of my mentors and the people that I work with most closely, and I'm um, grateful to them. Always feel free to email me anytime. Any STI questions in pregnancy? I would love to hear from you. Um, I'm in the middle of my NIH funding. I just put my first R1 in, so hope you love me some new numbers on there in the future. And thank you again for any chance to come back to my home state of Vermont. It's my favorite place to be. <laughs>